At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Guys, welcome back to Conspiracy Normal. Uh, we've been talking for about thirty minutes, so but uh, you hope you guys will never, you, you guys will never hear what we just talked about. But yeah, but we uh, got all the secrets awesome. of UFOs, all the secrets of the UFOs, <laughs> the paranormal revealed. No, it was all in that thirty minutes. And you guys just missed it. But this between us in this secret society. Uh, but tonight we've got two people that were part of the film that uh, just came out, I believe, about a month ago, called. Uh, tear in the sky and uh, we've got uh, return guest dave altman who's been on the show before welcome dave thanks guys thanks for having me back it's been a yeah. while yeah thank you for coming on uh anytime uh, you're a big supporter of conspiracy normal and uh we, we always love having you and uh david mason who was the uh the, one of the tech guys on the show the tech, the guy. tech guy hey well thanks for having me yeah yeah thank you david for coming on um and if you've seen the movie, then, um, you know, you've seen some of these, these various devices uh, that David Mason has, has pioneered. But first, I really, what I want to get into, I always like to kind of start just kind of like a personal level um, with, with both of you gentlemen. And, and, and Dave has been on the show first, so David, we'll start with you. What got you interested into the subject of UFOs, UAP, whatever the the name nomenclature is that we're talking about. Into the fascinating, the mysterious. Yep. Um, I'm of that generation of uh, in search of and all the books on. Same here. Yeah, that's what I was kind of getting at. When when I was uh, about seven or eight years old, my parents got divorced and my mom and I went to live with my grandmother and she was a librarian. So after school, my mom would have her job and I'd go to the library and my grandmother would sit me down into the, the monsters section of all the universal monster books on Dracula and Frankenstein and the Wolfman. And, you know, once I tore through those, the next shelf over was UFOs and Bigfoot and all that good stuff. And it's, uh, it hasn't stopped since. Yeah, same here for me. Um, we were just talking about on another episode where I mentioned being in the library and seeing the Man, Myth, and Magic series, and that's uh, right. 
it was kind of one of those books that like really kind of like a freaky cover and like had some freaky shit in it, but I remember, you know, being utterly fascinated by it too. So yeah. Yeah. There were a couple of books that scared the hell out of me and I never wanted to open them again. That's for sure. (laughs) When I was that age, you know, that's true. Yeah, that's true. Same here. Uh, well, uh, David Mason, what about yourself? Um, my interest developed at about age 13. I was checking out uh, books in the library about UFOs, and, and you kind of did that in secret. You know, you didn't want to share it with your friends because they thought you were crazy. And um, I, my mother subscribed to a, a UFO magazine, and I really dived deep into that magazine. And eventually I built uh, at age 13 a UFO detector, which was a compass that comprised of a phototransistor and a LED. So that what, what this detector did is if the compass deviated from magnetic north, it would trigger an alarm, a sonic alarm, so that you knew something caused it to alarm and go outside and look in the skies and see you know what you have. And so that was one device. And when I was 17, I built um, the, the photodial binoculars that were, were shown in the movie. And they convert the light that's modulating or fluctuating intensity and turns it into sound. And then it also has a built-in defocused low-power laser so that in the event, um, if an object in the sky is sending a signal to us, we can beam it right back to them in the form of this defocused laser in an effort to communicate with them. And so if, if they're sending out data, we're, we're probably not going to understand it. It's going to go over our heads. It probably won't make any sense to us. But if we just beam it back to them, it'll, it'll be slightly delayed, uh, and it'll show that we are making an effort to communicate. So that's that one device at age 17 is what, what I put wow. together. And uh, my, my discoveries of anomalous objects with FLIR happened in 2005 accidentally. I wasn't, um, I, I wasn't intending to go outside and look for UFOs with a, a thermal camera. I used mm-hmm. a, uh, a lab standard camera. I had my test lab that uh, we had paid 70 grand for. And this camera... Uh, which I'd use for engineering and troubleshooting and those kinds of things in electronics, I decided, well, I'm going to take it home and, and maybe it might be applicable in astrophotography. I'm going to see if I can get the long wave infrared to work with the optics, but, you know, of course I couldn't get the efficiency. And so I was left with, well, I'll just point it in the sky. I've got commercial jets flying overhead. It'll look kind of cool, you know, I, just to see what that looked like. And it was still daylight when two large, very large objects appeared in the camera and I, I looked at the monitor and I looked straight up and I had better than 2020 vision and I looked up and there was absolutely nothing in the sky. And it just shocked me. I did utter the acronym WTF when, when that moment happened. And then I, I tracked these objects and according to the camera's calibrated temperature span, which is a, uh, it's a, it's a gradient scale that shows temperatures based on the image, um, contrast. So you could, or, or shade, you can compare it to that ob- um, calibrated temperature span. And that ob- and the both objects measured minus 30 Fahrenheit in temperature. So I thought that was very strange and they made no sound. And that's really what got me started using uh, thermal cameras and specialized thermal cameras, not just any thermal cameras, but cameras that, that could range into very cold temperatures and, and quantify these cold objects. And I still don't know what they are. I just know they're not our technology because I've recorded thousands of hours of birds, bugs, and um, uh, air, you know, conventional aircraft. I know how they look and how they appear in the thermal camera. And they always register much, much hotter than these anomalous objects. So you saw these two little 
points of light that you could not see with the naked eye. Yeah, the these were these were, one was a, a large boomerang, one was a V, and really? it, and so the shapes were. Uh, it, when I look at the video, they occupied about five degrees of field of view, which is the equivalent of if you're looking at the moon and imagine you were to string the width of the moon, um, that would be about ten moons width. So you'd have to be really blind not to be able to, you know, to miss them. And yeah. so anybody should have been able to see that. It would be like looking at the width of your hand with your fingers spread wide at arm's length. You would, you would definitely see those objects. That'd be like the uh, size of like a Phoenix Lights kind of thing. Yeah, object. it's something yeah. like that. And it was just strange. They were just going eastward. And one was in front of the other, and and they weren't bird flocks, you know, because I know what bird flocks look like, and these looked very mechanical uh and just very cold and they were invisible to the naked eye and i've also on some occasions where i'm using the thermal cameras at night where two cameras will pick up an object and then i take out the gen 3 night vision which if you've ever used that really nothing can hide from that and they were not visible in the gen 3 night vision so it was like wavelengths were being blocked um, by whatever it is I'm recording because it, like your visual, um, wavelengths are going to be like 350 nanometer to about 850 nanometer. I mean, give or take 50 nanometers. And then your night vision technology, uh, like on image intensifier type will stop. It, it'll go down to about a thousand to 1100 nanometer wavelengths. But the long wave infrared where I'm detecting these objects is between the 13,000 to 14,000 nanometer wavelength, much, much longer wavelengths that are far out of our visible spectrum or even conventional IR mm -hmm. technology. And, you know, it's anyone's guess as to what these things are. And I've done a lot of uh, scientific analysis on the FLIR because, like, it doesn't matter what you, if you were to assume the emissivity of the object, this has to do with whether the object is shiny or flat black, it'll affect how the camera will measure that temperature. And if you were to say that the object was very shiny, like a, a bright aluminum piece in the sky, and let's say it's up at a very high altitude and it's cold in that environment, it's still gonna be reflecting the, the temperature of the Earth's crust back to the camera. And so that's how you, you can say that, you know, it can't be that. It can't be something shiny metallic. So then if you say, well, maybe it's flat black, you know, of course, we think like Project Aircraft. The problem with that, for it to inv indicate those super cold temperatures, that means that the object has to be at very high altitudes, upward of like 90,000 feet when we get down to minus 80 Fahrenheit. And the problem with that then is the scale of the object becomes very large. Uh, there was one video that uh, I was working with William Puckett from UFOs and W. He's a meteorologist, re retired meteorologist. And he looked at one of my videos and I showed him the temperature scale. And he said, well, that's at 90,000 feet. And I just applied some trigonometry to the camera aspect ratio and the apparent field of view of the object or measured. And according to the calculations, it was 2,200 feet across if this object was indeed at that altitude. So no, that's not our technology. And so either way you slice it, whether the emissivity is uh, an object that's shiny or flat black, there is no way of proving that it can exist in that kind of form. So it just deepens the mystery. When you see these things, you get the impression that they are completely solid or do you, or do they seem amorphous? 
like, do you see the same type of object or do you see different things at different times? I, that's a good question. I get some that do appear to be shape-shifting, others that look uh -huh. very solid and non-shape-shifting. Shape -shifting. Uh, I get cylinders are very common. Um, I get certainly the V formations. I've had solid triangles where they're, they're just a triangle mass and very cold triangle. Um, I've gotten um, a couple objects that were, they look like sky serpents. I don't know how to describe it. They look like they were undulating in the sky uh, like a snake, but they didn't, uh, um, you know, they didn't show a head or anything. Oh, and, and they were um, extremely cold, like about minus 70 Fahrenheit. And it's, it doesn't make sense unless if that was some form of a, like a, a living gas, you know, that was just raising the background temperature. Mm -hmm. So to, to explain the cold temperatures, when you take a thermal camera that has cold temperature capability and you point it toward a clear sky, uh, you'll get a temperature readback that isn't your ambient temperature. So it can be 80 degrees outside, uh, you know, Fahrenheit. And then you have a clear night sky and, and you point a thermal camera, you might get a reading back that's about minus 40, minus 50. And, and, and the reason for that is outer space is near absolute zero, but the Earth's atmosphere will, will, will um, has some mass to it. And it has a low emissivity, but it has some mass. So you're getting a sum of the Earth's atmosphere against that absolute zero sky. And you'll come up with this nominal temperature that really doesn't make a lot of sense. It's just the summation of, it, of, the, um, of the atmosphere against the night sky. And then within that cold atmosphere is where I record anomalous objects. And, uh, you know, every time a commercial jet flies by when I've got the camera spanning in those cold temperatures, it's just off the scale in temperature. It's white hot. And, right. uh, and of course, you know, it's a jet. And then I, I've got one video of a, um, a trifoil object, or it looks like, a, you know, the equivalent of a cloverleaf. It doesn't have a stem, but imagine two, three objects close uh, dangled together. And they're moving across the sky. And I, I think they were about minus 60 Fahrenheit and they were following a commercial jet. And I picked it up on two thermal cameras. And uh, I, I thought that was rather extraordinary. That was on September 30th, 2019, when that happened. Um, and I, 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 again, I don't know what these things are. I know what they're not. I know there's people that will try to look at them and give prosaic explanations. But what, and I've heard some of these prosaic explanations but they demonstrate they do not understand thermography or FLIR. Uh, and whenever I hear mm -hmm. the comments, because they immediately don't account for the temperatures. And that, that's a real problem in this field is you've got people uh, debunking things through proclamations and not real science, as well as supporting things where they don't apply science to a video that really needs to be vetted properly. Yeah. I think people usually, you know, in the study of, of UFOs and the phenomenon have, um, been really focused on just visual the visual aspect but you're taking mm -hmm. you know this this different data and i think that's right. that's real important to think about the stuff differently yeah it is a, if a different data points and there's other cameras that'll work well like if you're looking for you're using cameras that'll track satellites uh you know the thermal cameras won't pick up the satellites because they're too small to trigger the microbolometer cells Unless you're using an extreme magnification lens, you could you could get the ISS or the International Space uh, Space Station, um, and so there's events that'll happen in the sky that the thermal camera won't detect, and then of course the thermal camera will detect others. So you really need to combine different technologies and for different tools and to get different data sets. Are these things that you see on the uh, on the FLIR 
Um, are these like always in the same area where you're based out of, or have you gotten? I've moved. I've tried things, it different or? locations, different locations, yeah. and I get the same kinds of results. So, because I thought it, you know that it must be my backyard, must be the hot spot, you know. And I didn't want to. Av- <laughs> I didn't right. want to advertise that because I didn't want people camping in my yard and crapping yeah. in the yard or something, you know. So, I. Um, I, I experimented. I went to some other residences and set up and, and got it. In fact, when uh, uh, William Puckett uh, was living in Bellevue, I set up the camera at his his property and we recorded a, a triangular object. And, and and so I know what happens. And I've gone up and north of here in Baker Lake area. There's there's phenomenon going on. And I, I really believe it's just worldwide that it's not really a that you have to find certain UFO hotspots, you know, there's probably that exists, but I I'm sure anybody's backyard or front yard will, will yield uh, this phenomenon. I think so as well. Another point that you made, because these things are registering so cold, Mm -hmm. like really extreme cold. You know, one of the points that's made in the movie, well, you know, uh, tear in the sky that, you know, there are a couple of things that we could possibly mistake UFOs for like they had the, the drone and one was the, x something aircraft but if you saw one of those and you fl- uh, your thermal camera you oh, would it know would just, that it, it would be, be white hot, hot. yeah, yeah there, there's there's it's inescapable and then there would be uh you know its trajectory would would give it away and, right. and it's like where i've reported things it's i'm i live in a highly controlled airspace area uh you know it's a residential area i've flown mm-hmm. a cessna over my house when i was taking flying lessons and i know how uh, everything you know there, there's airports around the area but nobody's going to be flying black project aircraft within this highly controlled airspace it just it's it wouldn't be wise because you would have it, it you'd it'd be first tracked on radar mm-hmm. uh, you you could have a downed craft and you'd have some explaining to do yeah your 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 best is going to be tested you know away from public view so you wouldn't expose it to to scrutiny well, and about so where I, are you located? Is, is, is it Southern I'm, California? I'm about, no, I'm uh, about eight miles east of Seattle, Washington. Okay. These readings uh, coming from these devices are, it's a byproduct of the, the development of these different technologies. Like we all have heard, of course, that, you know, night vision goggles are really great to see UFOs mm-hmm. with. But uh, as these technologies progress, it seems like maybe, you know, we're going to start seeing or hearing or whatever they're measuring, we're going to start seeing more of these, these strange phenomena coming through. Just by the abundance of people that are buying the technology and utilizing it. And I think more and more people would, would accept the phenomenon if they spent more time going outside and doing their own sky watches. I mean, wh- whether just using binoculars in a recliner chair or investing in some Gen 2 or Gen 3 night vision, and if you spend a couple of clear nights observing, you're going to see phenomenon that isn't satellites or meteors. You're, you're going to see some things that don't follow the lines of physics as we know it. And, and it just takes those kinds of events for people to experience that they'll, it'll change their mind if they're, if, if they're a skeptic um, or if they, haven't, they don't have a decision on it. Once you see something and experience it, uh, you're hooked. You know? You're going to know that it's a real phenomenon. And you said you've been doing this since 2005 with a FLIR. Yeah. These things. Yeah. 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 So, uh, and, and what was funny was, you know, the following year, 2006, I was setting up and I picked up another camera and I wasn't getting as much activity. 
I mean, it, as far as what the level of recordings I was getting of anomalous objects, and I think it was around 2009, 2010, I got nothing. I mean, I would set up the cameras, I got the birds, bugs, and aircraft, and nothing else, and I would just go through hundreds of hours of video. And I know there were a few years where I didn't do anything because I was very frustrated because I just thought I'm going to record and get nothing, and I've got better things to do with my time. And it was in 2016 that I resumed a, you know, I'm going to reapproach this and see what I get. And it was like I came late to the party. There was a lot of stuff going on. So um, that's when I I picked up the recordings and just started to continue it and and purchase more thermal cameras. And, and that's where I'm at now. Yeah. And I mean, thermal cameras are like they're, they, they cost. So, yeah. Oh, yeah, <laughs> they, they do. And there's yeah. and, and this is one of the common misconceptions about thermal cameras, because people hear the name FLIR. And mm-hmm. they just think that it's all the same stuff because you can buy a like a three hundred dollar phone app you can put on your phone and and say you have FLIR and it'll do temperature read back not temperature but um, it'll give you a an image that's usable like you could do home inspections or look for Bigfoot with it and then you've got these metrology grade cameras that you know will be fifty thousand dollars and then right. they can uh, they can give you temperature read back with accuracy and give you all kinds of parameters where you can plug in your emissivity and distance and relative temperatures to get even greater accuracy and you'll get proper frame rates. And I'm, I'm using the expensive cameras for what I do. And, uh, and so there's differences on that. And then FLIR is also very confusing because there's a lot of manufacturers of the technology and, and FLIR is also a brand name because there's a company that purchased a couple of thermal camera manufacturers and then rebranded them as FLIR. And then, then FLIR ended up innovating and being their own manufacturer and technology developer. So they, they've really made a name for themselves. Um, it's kind of like Kleenex. Yeah. Or Xerox. Xerox, you know, yeah. Xerox copy, people would say, well, that, that was the brand. You could say photocopy. So there's a lot of misconceptions about uh, the technology. You know, people think you can see through buildings. You can't do that. Uh, you really don't see colors. It's false colors so that you can have better visual contrast of temperature yeah. differentials and those kinds of things. Since you're in Seattle, you should team up with some of these Bigfoot hunters and see if see if Bigfoot shows up at like negative 70 degrees. Oh, well, I'm sure he's probably not that cold if that, but <laughs> he's hot. A lot of, a lot of people. That are, would mean you might be dealing with somewhat similar phenomenon. I'd be interested. I'd be interested to, to see that. Yeah. I thought about doing a camera array just in, in a place where people have, have at least announced that they've seen or heard something. And I've talked to people who were who uh, credible on it that uh, they didn't see it, but they heard these strange sounds that weren't human. And, and yeah. so, you know, those are things I do want to follow up on. Well, the reason I asked the question about whether it was solid or amorphous is that I, um, we come from the kind of the school of thought that some of this with the UFOs, UAP, I think it's is paranormal by definition, mm-hmm. but maybe kind of more of a non-material type of uh, entity. It, and, I think it's a multitude of things. Yeah. So this is why a lot of people are confused. And, and, and I'm certainly confused as to what I'm looking at, because I really don't know. I, I know it's physical properties, right. but that doesn't tell me a lot other than it's not our stuff. Um, and, and of course, there's other problems in this field of paranormal and UFOs is that there's a lot of false data out there, a lot of faked videos. I, I knew this was happening. And when COVID broke in or came in, people were going to be sequestered at home and had nothing better to do but to write mm-hmm. programs of, of fake videos. And of course, an abundance of those things came out. And I was really shocked at how many of these fake videos that were easy to be debunked 
um, were getting press and getting play airtime and people were believing into it. And, and I found so many physics flaws within those videos. Uh, there's the famous one with the moon where these objects just suddenly appear around the crest of the moon and cast shadows. The shadows are in the wrong place. And then the objects get larger too quickly relative to the distance between the earth and the moon where they increase in size about 50%. And in actuality, if you do the calculations, the only uh, size increase should have been about 0.2% or some really small number. So they didn't do their physics right. They did good video work. I saw right. another, another one with the moon and it was funny because they did really excellent work and it was a, it was a half moon phase and there was this C-shaped object that was like a cloud, but it looked like the letter C. And it was during daylight and the, ca the camera operator, he zooms in on the moon and here's this object that looks mysterious. It looked real. And then he backs up and it shows the, you know, the power poles with the shadows casted. And I'm, I'm looking at the moon I'm, I'm, and I'm looking at the shadows. And I'm saying, this isn't real because the moon is showing that the sun's coming from a 10 o'clock position, but the shadows on the power poles are showing that it's coming from a five o'clock position. I'm going, whoever did this didn't understand astronomy or understand what they were doing, but they did really good work. They just didn't understand it. They screwed up on the physics, but this is what is going on. Just a lot of these fake ones because they want to get the clickbait for, for monetizing fake videos for YouTube or just playing a hoax just for the fun of it. Right. And that's, that's kind of the irony um, with the UFO videos now is like, it's easier to believe UFO videos, say from like the seventies or the eighties, Mm -hmm. As opposed to now, when you have all this technology, like all this special effects stuff is free and available to anybody that knows how to use it. And now if there's a UFO video, it could actually be real. But people are much more skeptical now because mm -hmm. of what it's like crying wolf. Yeah. yeah exactly. And most of them do it. They overdo it. They usually put too much content to it and they make it too big. And the ones that always laugh at because they'll show a UFO in the distance and then it flashes and then you hear this instant explosion and they forgot to do a time delay because if you have something that's a mile away and it explodes, there's going to be a five second delay for the sound to reach the camera and they don't have a time delay on it. So then, you know, that's that's a dead giveaway. Usually they just put too much content and uh, sensationalism into it. Um, and often they, you can tell that the video was made to tell a story. And there's a difference in how a video will be rendered if you're trying to tell a story versus I happen to be pointing my camera and there was something that shows up, you know, that you can usually see the differences. And it's, it's unfortunate because I'm sure there's some genuine artifacts out there or genuine UFO videos that have been taken that may have been debunked because of the abundance of the, the hoaxes that are out there. Well, not, not only that, but there's videos, you know, that, that the older generation bunked years ago, debunked years ago. But mm -hmm. people that are coming in that are newer, you know, they don't know <laughs> any right. different right. and they start putting it out again and like, hey, you know, that was debunked in the 90s, you know, yep. right. It's unfortunate. I want to talk about the ideas for making this film uh, Terror <laughs> in the Sky and Dave Altman, you know, um, this I think was partly your brainchild. Um, what was kind of the thought process of making this film and some of the techniques that you wanted to to use in making it we we were originally um going to make this a tv series and um we were just in the beginning of talks the contracts were there i'm, I'm sure you guys remember because you know we were we were talking a lot back then and, and then COVID hit. yeah then covid hit and and that was it 
And, um, you know, we, it just kind of went up on the shelf for a while. And, you know, to be honest, you know, the TV thing was cool and a movie idea was cool, but we, you know, we just wanted to go out there and do it, you know, but unfortunately without the funding, <laughs> you know, we're just a couple of guys with high hopes. Um, so, um, I was introduced to Caroline through a mutual friend of ours. And, you know, she told me, you know, that she was thinking about doing, uh, a movie and going in a different direction. She, um, she focused, was focusing more on consciousness and her last, her last movie, um, was, was more based on, you know, the topic of remote viewing, but she mm -hmm. wanted to do something new and something scientific. And then she approached me, um, and you know, the rest is, is history, you know, here, here was our opportunity to do what we've been wanting to do since day one of, of joining that group, you know, is to get out there and do it. And, um, that, that's pretty much how it happened. You know, it was something that had never been done before. And she was taking a big gamble on a bunch of guys who had never actually worked together. We were pretty much all yeah. Zoom buddies. You it was kind of like a real world. Like you guys all exactly place and stayed together. And yeah, and I mean, what if the stuff? guy I was with, what if he snored or something? Or what if he smelled <laughs> bad or something? I'm on an island with this guy. It was like Survivor for real, man. You know? And, but yeah, luckily... You know, not to mention, you know, were we going to catch anything on video? Were we going to get any evidence? And, you know, thank, thanks to her, she took that chance and we were able to, to actually do it, you know. And, I mean, you guys saw the results. You know, I think she, she really came through, you know. Yeah, it's a lot more uh, visually uh, compelling and engaging than a lot of UFO documentaries because it's not just like interview and the historic footage. It's like, right. you know, real time observation and discussion and it's got some movement to it and urgency. So, yeah, I really like that about it, especially. Yeah. And then one thing that you, you, you don't know is um, when I first got on to, uh, first of all, for those who haven't seen the movie, I'll just do a quick little visual for you. We had, we had, we had diff three different locations. Um, we, well, actually there was two different locations on Catalina Island that I had, I was on two different roofs of two different hotels. And then the main team was on Laguna and, um, that better. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, then when we had, uh, the, the mobile unit, the, that Osiris vehicle. So when I first got out to the Island, there was a mix up with production and we didn't receive any gear to record anything. All we had was night vision. We had night vision and we had the big eyes, the, binoc the big binoculars, and we had our production, the camera gear. So I was out there for the first two or three nights. I forget which one. I was seeing stuff the first night. And you can see me reacting to it in the movie, but we didn't figure out that we could actually record with the iPhones do the night vision until like the third night. So, you know, there was a lot popping off right at the beginning. So, right. I mean, the first night I was out there, I knew we would be able to probably get some type of evidence. You know, I don't know if it, I don't know what it was, you know, um, but in the same way where I know what it wasn't, whatever I saw, I know it wasn't a plane, wasn't a drone, wasn't a helicopter. I don't know what I saw. I just know what it wasn't. You know, I, I could be looking at an object through the night vision and seeing like a, a white ball pulsating there and then take the night vision goggles down and there's nothing there <laughs> put them back on and it's there again you know so yeah it was it was pretty cool you know and then across to K 
California proper on the other side. You guys are on Catalina, um, where the the other part of the team with this array of David's equipment. So everything you see on on the both rooftops, with the exception of the UFO depth camera. So this was the camera on a tripod with a dome and an antenna projecting. That's owned by Carolyn Corey, and she purchased that camera system for the purpose of acquiring data. And I brought all uh, eight thermal cameras or FLIR cameras, the, the night, all the night vision, the big binoculars, the, the handheld binoculars, the, uh, the large telescope, which we didn't get to really feature, but you can see it in the movie. And um, also had um, the array of inventions um, and, and the spectrum analyzer and oscilloscope and radiation analyzer. There was quite a few things that I brought. And... Uh, and I had to monitor all that stuff and set it up and calibrate it and get everything operational and, and update the uh, the recorders because we were running eight clear cameras 24/7 and having to record them on on the thumb drive. So there were it was quite a quite a feat to do that to keep uh, on track with all this gear. And uh, the inventions were 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 quite a few. There were the uh, the photodiode binoculars, which I mentioned earlier, that convert light to sound. And then I had another invention, which was shown in the movie, which is a um, uh, night vision device that converts light to sound. So these are kind of cool. You look through them and you get night vision experience. And then you can hear the sound of the light that you're looking at with the night vision. And then you can run that light to head that sound to headphones or to a loudspeaker or recording device uh, or even hook it back up to the light wave transmitter. And. Uh, and the third device that I had at the island, uh, we didn't get a chance to cover it. It's a thermal camera that I re-engineered 80% of the circuitry. So this camera will take um, long wave infrared. It could be cold temperatures or warm temperatures and turn it into sound. So if we have something fluctuating in temperature, we can hear it. And uh, an example of that camera is I had it pointed at a bird flock and I could hear the wings beating of those birds. Uh, oh, wow. Based <laughs> The temperature changes of the wings was causing a sound in the loudspeaker. And so that was one of the devices I brought that wasn't really shown in the movie. And, uh, and then I also had a, uh, it, it's seen a, a multiple times. It's a triple spectrum light wave transmitter. And what this thing does is it broadcasts spread spectrum AM and FM modulation of light. And, and it does it in ultraviolet and white spectrum and then infrared spectrum. And there's a little bit of overlap, but I'm trying to cover a broad spectrum and do it in spread spectrum form because this is now more of the trend we're doing in, in RF technology where we're not just beaming a single carrier wave, we're, we're widening the bandwidths and there's some advantages to that. So this device allows us to you know transmit light and up to 800 terahertz in frequency. And this is... Um, in the ultraviolet spectrum and we're leapfrogging the technology of the electromagnetic spectrum because in radio you know we're talking gigahertz and our experimental rf is going to be around 500 gigahertz and the um to go at 800 terahertz and and just go to that that spectrum we're we're trying to make that leapfrog of technology toward whatever it is that might be out there in outer space to say that hey we're here and we're trying to communicate and uh, so, and then it's this light wave transmitter, you can put music on it, you can put whatever data you want, uh, and you can hook up the photodial binoculars to it or the thermal camera that makes light to sound or the um, uh, night vision that makes light to sound. So whatever you're seeing or hearing, you can, you can run it through this uh, big um, power transmitter system. 
Uh, and the night vision also has a built-in transmitter. It's a dual laser that is uh, defocused and dual spectrum. And so it'll do ultraviolet and red spectrum. And the thermal camera that I re-engineered also has a long wave infrared transmitter doing the same thing. It'll transmit back whatever it receives. So just trying to do some kind of uh, first level of communication if, it, if it's ever possible. And who knows? Dave, David's got a YouTube channel that he demonstrates a lot of his stuff oh, on. No, yes. Not, yeah. yeah, I've got some of some of that stuff posted, and and so people can see how it works. What's the name of the YouTube channel? It's just my name. <laughs> so, okay. Uh, if David you see, you, you just say David. Mason. I'll, I'll send you the link. Okay. Yeah, cool. and, and I and it's just my. Uh, I'm wearing. Um, I was flying an airplane, and I was wearing some headsets. So if anybody sees that, that's mine. Um, yeah, you can you can check out that i've got some astronomy night vision videos uh, my parrot playing my guitar that that kind of stuff a few guitar videos that i've done <laughs> um solo solo acoustic guitar but, but it's yeah you've got to explore and think outside of the box and <laughs> and that's why i'm building these things and and i've got the engineering experience because you know i back even back in the mid 80s i worked for a ham radio uh product manufacturer engineering products and ham radio uh, equipment and and so I've really had an extensive background in, in just developing things from out of scratch and then, and then putting it into either marketplace. And in my company, uh, we do custom engineering on, on products or electronic test and measurement equipment when it's required. And, and there are a few other things, that, things I can't really mention just because of NDAs. He but, knows what he's doing. Yeah, I know what I'm doing. <laughs> uh, David, you know, the audience can't see you, but uh, you do mm -hmm. have a couple of uh, pieces of equipment behind you. Mm -hmm. And uh, the viewers in the back, the, the three. Yeah. Uh, I think you were describing that a little bit about the, the music waves and, and all. Mm -hmm. Is that part of that? Um, can you describe a little bit? Because that you featured that kind of prominently in the um, in the film. Mm -hmm. Can you describe that a little bit, what its function is, and kind of some interesting concepts behind that. Okay, so what I have, uh, what you'll see in the movie is a, a triple spectrum light wave transmitter. And the light, is, what I mean by sp triple spectrum, there are three individual um, light wave transmitters. One's a, an infrared one where we can't really see the light, but it's infrared. The one's just full spectrum, it's white light, and then one's ultraviolet. And by splitting the three, it's like you're separating out uh, three different um, radio stations, if you want to say, like a broadcast stations. And you can put different information on each one of these light wave transmitters. So sort of like a radio station, you could have rock music on one channel and classical music on another, or you know, just, just the DJ talking about sports on another. You could do that with this transmitter. And by separating them out, you, you don't have a bunch of noise or clutter uh, going between them. But what we're doing is effectively transmitting in the electromagnetic spectrum, uh, very high frequency um, information and light is high frequency relative to uh, radio frequencies. And we can take, uh, if we receive something from outer space, like if we're using the photodial binoculars and there's an object in the sky that's pulsing, we can receive those pulses and uh, take run them through the photodial binoculars or night vision device, and then run it to the light wave transmitter console, which was shown in the movie. And then that console will then take that energy and put it back to the light wave transmitter. So like an amplifier is as to say, is the console is more like a, an amplifier and, and communicate just using light wave. 
it's, it's kind of similar to what we do in fiber optic technology, which has been around for decades, but we're just taking it to a different scale, bigger scale and, and having a different application to it. And Dave, you guys were like kind of doing advanced spotting on the, uh, on the Island there. It seemed like you would then direct the team uh, on the mainland to where to, where to look based on. Yeah. So the, tri- the triangulation. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what we would do was, you know, um, if, and this wasn't really planned, you know what I mean? Like it kind of was, but not really, um, props to Michael Hall because he was the one that right away was like, you know, let's, let's see what's going on with this object. So, like I said, the first couple of nights, you know, I had seen some, some things that I couldn't explain. Um, not to mention, I saw something, um, that, was white. It was bigger than a beach ball. And it was about 250 feet out in front of me. And it, and it was before it got dark, it was just getting dark. So I actually saw it. It wasn't glowing. It was like, I don't know what it was, but I saw it for a second. Then it got dark. And as soon as it got dark, we started seeing different lights. And obviously you can tell if it's a plane or whatever. So an example is like, if I'm looking at something and I'm like, Hey, is this a plane? I can't really tell. We could contact the other team and they could look up online and see if there's a plane in that vicinity at that time. So for sure, one of the objects that I saw, you know, we called them up and we're like, hey, um, you know, we're seeing this. What do you got? And they're like, we got nothing. In other words, saying it's not a plane. There's nothing there. So we immediately called the team, told them about it. Then they were able on their side, and I'll let Dave continue in a second. You know, we gave them our co- the coordinates of where it was we, that we were looking at and so forth. We were on the island. We laid it to that team, and then they took over on, on, on that side to try and triangulate and get their own data on whatever we were looking at. Mm-hmm. And I'll let Dave explain how they did that. Oh, we, we just uh, went back to the timestamp of, of- – what we were having and then looking at the data that we had recovered or was, was analyzing at the time. And I don't remember which event uh, uh, Altman is uh, referring to, but I know we had some correlative data where we had the, the, a, fir- the first one, the, the nine thirty event, nine thirty event. I'm trying to recall which one that uh, did it. Was that something that correlated with FLIR or just radiation? That was the one where it was correlate. It was, I saw it, you got, and then Kenneth, uh, Kevin Knuth saw it. And then the Osiris went out, and that's when they looked with the fisheye. Okay, and that and that was um, it, was that the event where they had the that that thing in the sky, or was that the um, was, yeah? It was, was the it, night I, the night vision that I caught. Okay, um, I, I don't remember what came up on FLIR right at that time. That, that's what I'm trying to correlate. I think I'm getting the readings were I think were more on um, radiation, mm-hmm. and 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 I think gamma or something. I forget too. Yeah, and I think I think it might have hit, hit uh, like forty-two million uh, or forty-two million electron volts at at one moment. It was a big spike over the two uh, million electron volts per uh, for nominal background. I think that's what that might have had. There was there were several events I know where we had these correlating uh, spikes. I just wanted to be sure yeah. about which one I was mentioning, so I, I wasn't really clear on that. Welcome back, everyone, and uh, now, now tonight we are really going to start getting to the top of the pyramid, as they say, the, the capstone with the 
the eye of the grand architect of the universe. That's right. You got to watch out for that, Shelby. Now, in the in in the last uh, transmission here, now we talked about the mysticism of the the international order of, or excuse me, international association of conspiranormalists. They make it sound like it's a good thing, like it's an association. It ain't, it ain't, it ain't an association. Well, it's an association of a bunch of dang. Preverts is what it is, but we'll get to that now. Yeah, well, yeah, uh, sex magic. And and then we talked about that social Mardi Gras society called the Mystic Crew uh, of Conspiranormal and how the Strange Realities Conference was put on by these elements and, in fact, used to promote these groups. All right, well, you know, tonight what we're going to do is we're going to get even further into the secrets of the strange realities. And we're going to talk about the hidden hand behind all of it. You know, the most elected. Oh, that's right now. That's right. You know, hidden hand, man. The real insiders that pull the strings. And, of course, you know who I'm talking about. I'm talking about that order known as the ancient circle of strange realities. Now, it's said that members of the Mystic Crew are really getting out of hand at Strange Realities conferences. So they had to put that little revolt down, and they needed another layer of secrecy to hide their nefarious doings. But even more secret rituals and symbolisms, and that this society would be only for the most adept candidates and for those master propagandists of conspiranormalism, what the hell is that, who have spoken at the Strange Realities Conference and done their little rituals and stuff on stage, man. you got to have an exorcism just to get through all that. Now, now, I hear that down to the last one, every single one of them who've spoken at Strange Realities Conference, the Mystic Crew Balls, the Strange Realities monthly streaming series, which is free to all $10 patrons. But don't do that now. No, come on. Every last one of them is in the ancient circle of strange realities. Of course. Of course. I mean, why would they be speaking if they weren't? And that's, that's how the ancient society, the ancient circle of strange realities was actually created, Shelby. Those presentations are selected as part of their agenda in the furtherance of conspiranormalism, the Mr. Crew, and all this nonsense. And for $20 a month, this elite of the elite, they get t-shirts, all the secret transmissions, entry into the Mr. Crew's happenings and the, 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 the monthly speaker series, and it is rumored that they get together every year at the Strange Realities Conference and then that's where they meet their hidden masters yep. mm-hmm. from yep. other worlds to receive yep. their instructions. Sended beings like, you know, that live in like Shambhala or something. Now, now you see, it, it appears that Adam and Sifiel are well, at the top. Yeah, they definitely are. But what lies behind these grand hierarchs of these various societies that are found at patreon.com slash that's right. That's right. Uh, that, that's that's where you can find it. I don't. I don't want you to go look. I don't think you should seek this stuff out. But if you're curious, I'm gonna tell you right now. You know, before the grace of it's God. It's all out there. Before the grace of God, go with you, son. And 
you know it is out there and what you don't want to do is pay that five dollars for that international association of paranormalists definitely don't want to pay ten dollars to get into the mystic crew where you can get a monthly you know speaker series or something or whatever they do i don't I don't think what they do they, they do they, they, in they, the Mystic Crew? They keep that secret. I don't think that's a speaker. I think there's some Babylonian fertility rites going on up in there. You definitely, definitely don't want to get some secret garment or your, your temple underwear, or whatever hell it is you get at the Ancient Circle of Strange Realities. And that's you know that's the twenty dollar level. You don't want to go there, guys. Don't don't you know? But if you, if you feel like it, if you really feel like you need to. Just, just to look, I'm gonna tell you, you are looking into the spawn of Satan. But you, you, you could go to that Patreon.com/slash/conspiranormal. But I am warning you. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn five dollars into one hundred and fifty dollars instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code Champion One Hundred and Fifty. Then. Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. But I haven't ever seen anything that was really like this, this mastermind put together, you know, with all these different people, different uh, places and all these different technologies together and having multiple witnesses too of the same things from different perspectives. Uh, it was really cool. Yeah. It was, it was fun doing it. It was a lot of work. I'll tell you. It, I mean, yeah. Life. I, um, not, not only, you know, with the equipment wise, but you know, I, I was doing research on the area for two years before we even got started because I was just looking to go out there and do the expedition. And then there was the TV series that was possibly going to happen, you know, so I really did a, a deep dive into that area and I made a lot of local contacts who told me some crazy stories. Um, a lot of fishermen, fishermen captains and whaling captains see things out there all the time and they have the same stigma as pilots and they just don't want to talk about it. And uh, I became friends with uh, the editor of the Catalina Island newspaper, who actually wrote a book, which I have. Oh, I can't show it to you because I can show it to you, but the audience can't see it. Unfortunately, it's uh, Mysterious Catalina Island. And this is an entire book written by uh, Jim Watson about the strange sightings and everything strange. I mean, from the giants 
to UFOs yeah. to, uh-huh. to portals. I mean, the guy was able to write a whole book. Yeah. He actually had sent me um, a photocopy of the Catalina Island newspaper from the front page, along with a handwritten copy of uh, two army veterans who July 7th and 8th, 1947, photographed flying discs on the beach. And this is the same week as Roswell. It's going to be my next question was, why did you guys pick Catalina Island? So apparently Catalina Island, there's a lot of weird stuff that's happened there. But specifically, you picked it because of what happened. Kevin Day and the Nimitz encounter. Yeah, yeah. Right. So let's talk a little bit about that. What I mean, people, are, I'm sure, are familiar with this, but but why you know you specifically chose this, you know, Catalina, and then on the other side, talk about that just a little bit. Yeah. So for, for anybody that doesn't know, um, 2017 is when the New York Times article came out, and along with that article were were three videos, which was the gimbal, the go fast, and the tic tac. And uh, the the Navy was out doing uh, maneuvers, you know, practicing. And this was out towards Guadalupe and Catalina Island. And they picked up objects on radar, and they had visuals from the pilots as well as visuals from some of the crew. And it was a life changing event for some of the guys that were there, um, and some of the guys the retired veterans from the Navy were on our team. And that was the whole point. Kevin, Kevin day. Um, he's the one that put the team together. Originally, it was his idea. He was the founder and he wanted to bring out to uh, that area, a team of scientists to go and actually collect data or try and collect data on whatever it is the Navy encountered out there. And, you know, lo and behold, you know, that was one of the the big things that kind of, hooked me a little bit about the whole Nimitz encounter because there's so much debate on whether it was ours, it was theirs, it was we don't know. I mean, if the story would have happened and me, I'm very, I'm a very skeptical person. If I'm not there and I don't see it, I have a hard time. So I do kind of lean towards eyewitness accounts if it matches up with maybe something other stuff that's happening. Am I making sense? So you have the Nimitz encounter and there's a lot of people that were like, Oh, well it was drones. Well, there weren't drones in 1947 when these two guys (laughs) on the beach are photographing discs, let alone 1942 when the battle of LA happens and the object comes down to Catalina and then goes out to the Pacific. So stuff's been going on out there for a long time. It's just always been going on probably since before we can, we know Catalina like the book says, it's very mysterious. Um, during World War II, that's where the OSS trained. OSS is the predecessor to the CIA. So you get a lot of weird stuff going on out there. Like we mentioned the giants. There's allegedly giant skeletons buried all over that island. And trust me, every chance I get got to talk to a, a person that's from there, a native, my first question was, where are the giants? <laughs> you know, And they would tell me the stories about you know them being out there. Elio Marzulli talks about that a lot. The Catalina Island giants, I've heard, because yeah, he equates them with the Nephilim and all that stuff. So, yeah, I mean, you know, I don't know what they were. I don't know if they were right. Nephilim or if they were tall people, but whatever. There's multiple, multiple stories. And like example is, um, there's a guy who's born on the island and he owns a submarine. He does submarine tours, and he, I mean, he was 
been there for 50, 60 years. And I asked him and I was like, Hey, so what can you tell me about the giant skeletons? I'm like, you know, where are they buried? He goes, just look under your feet because they're everywhere on this Island. He told me in the thirties when they were building the casino, uh, which is up on up kind of on a cliff face on Catalina Island, they dug out where they were going to build the casino and it was nothing but skeletons, nothing. And they just put the, they put the casino not on top of all of them. They got out what they could, but they're all still buried there. You know, we're right. talking like, you know, seven to nine foot skeletons of, of people, whatever they are. Yeah. I mean, and Catalina Island too. I mean, Walter Bosley, who was on not too long ago, he, my good talk, friend, <laughs> he, talk, he talks, he talks about Catalina. I mean, he talks about how the Wonka Brio expedition and that they sailed around, you know, Catalina Island. He thinks that mm-hmm. there was something, stored on Catalina Island at one point. Um, so I think I personally think there's some type of maybe magnetic anomaly. I mean, especially like Guadalupe, it's hotspot for, um, for great whites. It's like where they go to mate. And, uh-huh. you know, when you think of, of sharks and how they move and, you know, where they go and, you know, like it's always comes back to like something with like electromagnetic or, or something. You know, so it's so, something, something's out there. I don't know what. Yeah. It kind of like pulls them in. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, it seems to me when I was watching this and I mean that there's that this is kind of Catalina and this makes sense with everything else that I know and everything else that I've talked about the Catalina, that area seems to be kind of like this uh, portal area. And you, and you see this in places like, Skinwalker Ranch. I think Rindlesham Forest is another one in, in the UK. Uh, there's some, there's weird places out here like Adams, Tennessee, that's, you know, the Bell Witch stuff, you know. Uh, so it seems to be one of these areas where the weird stuff kind of comes through. <laughs> yeah. You know, you know who died out there was actress Natalie Wood. Yes, that's right. And, yeah. and what's even weirder is that Christopher Walken was on that boat yeah. and he played Whitney Whitley Streeper. Yes, he did. Yep. And communion. Yeah. So it's like synchronicity, you know, like it's crazy. Yeah. You know? And then um, I, I became friends with uh, a guy who owns, he's got a company called Horizon Boats and he's a uh, producer and director for Shark Week and his company, they're the ones that you go to, like if you want to go dive with sharks and you want to cage, you go to this guy and he puts you in a cage and drops you in the water with the great whites. Um, but he told me a lot of stories, not only that stuff that he's seen, but other captains of, of, of ships have told him, you know, uh, there's one, there's one story about um, a green door that was like some kind of portal opened up above the Island. And it was just like a green doorway mm-hmm. and it was there for a few seconds and then it was gone. And people have seen it a few times. There was one where there was a captain of a boat and it was uh, late at night, four in the morning and him and the first mate was in the galley, putting his head on the table, getting some rest. And he said that the, the inside of the boat lit up so brightly for like three seconds that it woke the guy up that had his head down. And he says to the captain, like, Hey captain, you know, what was that? And the captain was like, yeah, don't worry about it. It happens all the time. You know, just crazy stuff. Yeah, and that's that's another question too. Is like the navy. Um, I mean, you're not far from San Diego, 
So the right. Navy is right there, the bases and everything. And the Navy has probably encountered these things multiple times. Because For sure. Wasn't the whole, the, the USS Nimitz and the, and that, uh, that fleet that was out there. I mean, they were doing exercises. So that's probably one of the places that they do their exercises a lot. And it's kind of like a chicken and egg situation yeah. in a way. It's like, are the things out there because of the Navy? Are the Is the Navy out there because of these things? You know, it's kind of makes you think. Well, you know, I mean, Kevin Day, he talked about how, I mean, he talked about how they confiscated some of the records and I'm sure mm-hmm. that that's happened a ton, which right. that later on was, I mean, the Tic Tac video was the huge, that's the huge video, right? I mean, that's yeah. 2017 and, and uh, w- when that really like blew wide open. So, right. I mean, I know that he kind of feels vindicated about all that because they were trying to say that, I mean, you know, I didn't know that he, you know, was so affected by it. I mean, he seemed in the film, yeah, I mean, he, he gets very emotional. He is. Whenever he talks about it, he's very, very emotional. I mean, his life has just been turned upside down since this all came out, you know, let alone the stress he was under before it came out. I can't even imagine, you know? So we've seen those videos, but there'd be a lot of other information that would have been recorded besides just those videos. If they were in there. Yeah. I mean, they, somebody allegedly came on a helicopter, and took away you know all that stuff um it's like x-files style um you know uh you know but it's i've heard so many things i've heard there's longer video of better quality you know like i've heard i mean i just don't know what (laughs) to believe anymore you know it's it's just such a big 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 story you know I mean, I do, I do know, you know, like I've talked to Alex Dietrich, you know, she's the only pilot. Well, I've talked to Ryan uh, Graves briefly, and this is just all, you know, on social media, never in person, you know, and uh, they seem like they're pretty honest people, you know, like David Fravor, he, you know, and Chad Underwood, the guy who actually filmed that stuff, you know, um, they seem pretty credible to me. And I think that they would know what they're looking at. And also just got to mention that the, the one video, the... The gimbal, I believe, was the one that was filmed on the East Coast, and that was during a different event with the Roosevelt. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, there's probably, you know, I mean, like I said, I just think these portal areas, they are they are worldwide. Yeah, these, it's another, you know, I mean, in my opinion, you know, you've got places like Skinwalker Ranch, you've yep. got places like The Meadow, and then like Marley Woods, Sedona, you know, mm-hmm. uh, was it um, Chapel Chapel Green? What? Well, no, not. I'm thinking of uh, not Rendlesham, but there, there's another area. Uh, I forget the name of it. It'll, it'll come to me. But there's just different areas, you know. And it's something like our friend our friend Nathan talks about when he was looking at areas when he looked at Somerset, Kentucky, and he took out the that one map with the anomalies on it, and he was like, "Oh my God, it's all underneath here in Somerset," you know. It's I think it's if you probably looked at that map and lined it up with reports of this kind of stuff, I bet you you'd get something. I bet there'd be some connection. Well, see, that would be the next step. I mean, uh, are there any other places that that you guys, if you're going to make a sequel to Terror in the Sky <clears throat> or something along that effect, is there any place that you guys would want to go and There is, but I'm going to keep them to myself. <laughs> Bless you. Good idea. <laughs> you know, I mean, I mean, obviously there's the, 
just a more, I mean, I would love, I would love, I'll say, I'll say a couple of suggestions. I would love to go out to someplace, maybe like Chris Bledsoe's property, you know, Mm -hmm. um, that's one I would like to go to. And, um, you know, maybe even, uh, Sedona, you know, I mean, there's people, people say, you know, this, and it's, it's true. This phenomena can happen anywhere and it does, but there, I'm sorry, but there are certain spots where it happens more than others. You know, it's just common knowledge. Oh yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. We'd like to see that too. And hopefully you guys can, can do some more of that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, definitely I'm ready to go. I would, I mean, not for a film or a movie, but I'd love to go back out there knowing what I know now, like, and, and Dave probably would feel the same way, knowing what we know now and bringing stuff that we didn't have the first time. You know what I mean? Like if we went to Catalina and brought the equipment like they had at Laguna, who the heck knows what we would catch? Right. That's what I'd like to do. What, what do you guys think about this? Uh, the congressional hearings that happened? Did you, did you guys keep up with that? Just like mean, this was yeah, like so, last week. Yeah. So I, I you know, watched them. Um, I didn't go into it thinking we were going to have disclosure. Um, I was probably blown away by the two things that most people were. And that was the Wilson documents and Maelstrom, you know, like the fact that those things were mentioned, you know, it's, it's kind of shocking, you know, like not, not the nuclear one, but the, but the, the Wilson documents, you know, like I wasn't expecting that. that, that with the Wilson documents. So the Wilson documents are papers that were found um, in the collection of uh, Edgar Mitchell, the astronaut. He passed away and he was, uh, before he passed away, he was a member of NIDS and Bass. Like he worked with, uh, right. you know, uh, John Alexander, Kit Green, Hal Putoff, mm-hmm. Robert Bigelow, that whole crew, and Eric Davis. And these, these were notes that were written by Eric Davis, I guess, to go to, I believe, to go to Edgar Mitchell. He wasn't available to go one day. Eric Davis took notes, gave them to him. I think that's, if I remember correctly, but the notes were um, a meeting that Eric Davis had with um, with uh, an Admiral Wilson and, you know, pretty much talking about like, you know, a, a reverse engineering program by the government, talks of crash retrievals, you know, stuff like that. And there's a big debate whether or not these were real notes or not. I mean, when it first happened, ufology was split in two, people that believed it, people that didn't just like everything else in ufology, you know, you've got your debates about everything, but this was a big divider. There were certain people that really, that really uh, pushed it. And um, I know right now, a lot of them feel vindicated that this was mentioned in that hearing, you know, but it's like, was that mentioned on purpose to throw us off? Was it really, mentioned? you know, it's all these things go through your head when the U S government talks about this stuff, because you never know what to believe, you know, it's just, it's a, another can of worms in your brain just about do you think that they're trying to like throw this out to the public just as like a well here you go here's something to whet your appetite i mean there's it are we i mean it's, it just seems like the military is like really involved with with this and 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 to me that kind of well of course they would be i guess but there's there's some of it that just kind of makes me suspicious Honestly, there's a lot of it that makes me suspicious. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah so, I mean, it's like, are, are we dealing with some kind of like disinformation or? Yeah, it's either it's either like a continuation of Project Beta, <laughs> that situation sure. where they're using the UFO. Phenom- You're welcome, Greg. That's another five cents you owe me. Um, 
<laughs> where they're using the UFO phenomenon to cover up what they're working on, you know, not saying that there's not some type of phenomenon, but are they building on that to cover yeah. up what, what their technology, you know, um, from what, from what I gather and from what I've kind of heard through the grapevine, you know, that they, they, they don't know what this thing is. They know it's something and that's why they're not coming out with it is because they really don't know what's going on and they can't control it. And that's a problem. Well, and it sounds like that a critical mass is, is happening with independent researchers too. And if you got guys like you out there capturing this stuff, if there's just too much of that, they have to kind of like be on the front of that. Well, not really, because everything that they're presenting, especially like, you know, with the task force and this hearing, it's they're they're going along thinking, well, not thinking, but they're not talking about anything that happened before 2004. To them, this thing started with the Nimitz encounter and they're only going with with military testimony. They're not talking to the average guy who filmed mm-hmm. something. They don't care about that. Right. You but they want to they want to shape that narrative and they don't want it to right. be you know, with, without their input. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And they put their spin on it. They, you know, it's like, are they using it to their advantage? Weird stuff. Yeah. It's just, you know, it's like the, uh, the, what do you call it? The immortal snake that just keeps eating its tail, <laughs> you Ouroboros. know, just keeps going. Yeah. Well, that's it. Yeah. It just keeps going, man. Yeah. I, I, you know, I just, I mean, the whole disclosure thing, I, I just don't think that, I think people are like really, hopeful and, and you talked about this dave that you know the, the new generation gets a hold of a lot of this stuff and there's some of us that have been around for a long time with all this and right we're like well this has happened before and it's gonna happen this this is happen again and you guys if you want to do something cool if you're if you want to do something cool and you're following ufology today with all this go back and listen to art bell from mm. 1994 to 1998 and it's the same exact thing that's happening now happened yeah. then. And you can listen to it and you're going to be like, holy shit, man. This is exactly what's going on now. And our bell was initially funded by Bigelow. And, and not only that, I mean, we're talking the art, arts parts, the materials, all that stuff, man. I mean, that's a whole nother show. The stuff, I mean, you can go back and it's the Linda Moulton Howe talking about the metals, talking about arts, talking the magnesium, the bismuth, the whole thing, everything, even, even, um, you know, with, with, with people in, in the government, when, when the Phoenix lights happened, they had all these people come on there, you know, and, and, you know, that were like whistleblowers in a way, you know, but, and you thought then that that was it. You know, every year, every year on our bell shows in the nineties ends with disclosure <laughs> yeah. at, in January, mm-hmm. it's disclosure episode mm-hmm. and it's the yeah. same people that you got now. Right. Cause right. they've made a career out of it. Yeah. They make a career out of, you know, I'm not going to name any names, but we all know. Yeah. Uh, it's, <laughs> it just keeps going and going and going. Here's, here's one that you probably don't remember. I think it was 1997 was the 50th anniversary of Roswell. And they had a press conference. They had a big thing in Roswell at the museum. And they had the same thing to do every year, but it was a bigger one because it was the 50th. And there was a couple of people that were, you know, in ufology with a couple of people that were mainstream scientists with a couple of people from Hollywood. And they were having a big 
press conference to announce that they had materials and that they were tested. And this is it. And we're going to be doing the press conference in about an hour. Well, the time came for the press conference. And guess what? It was canceled because the one scientist decided he didn't want to be a part of it. He didn't want to get his name out there. It's like the same things that are happening over and over again. It's like they keep bringing out the same bag of tricks, you yeah. know, and people, unfortunately, you know, like we were saying, people that are younger that are just getting into this now, they don't know about all that stuff because yeah. they're not looking into cases. Like my, my biggest thing to, to research is anything that happened pretty much before the eighties, like the contact me, contact D movement. I love, I love all that stuff. I love all those cases from back then. The cruel, the crazy wacky stuff, you know, like the, the humanoid cases and all the landing cases. That's what I love looking into. And oh, some yeah. of these same, people never even here. heard of it. Yeah. Like Albert Rosales, you know, like that's, that's the kind of stuff I'm into, you know, like right. and people, people don't know about that stuff. And it's just, it blows my mind. People. Here's another one. Wait, real quick. While I'm, yeah. I'm thinking. So George Knapp, went to uh, Russia in the 90s, came back with materials. Where's that? What happened to that? Yeah. All we heard was he was talking to Art Bell. I'm in Russia. I'm coming back. I've got materials from a, from a craft. That got was the last the I ever heard of it. Last I ever heard of it. Got the stuff. <laughs> I got the meta materials, man. Yeah, I got the meta, man. I'm curious, David Mason, how you feel about some of this. Like, I mean, we were talking earlier, you know, just about the that there might be a, a much less physical explanation for for all this, and and I really think that's why it just cannot be pinned down, and it's going to just remain anomalous. I mean, do you have any thoughts on those, these congressional hearings and like the disclosure movement and, and any of that material? Um, on the congressional hearings, I did. Uh, I watched it. I finally watched it. And the only positive I would get out of it is that it was actually given credence where uh, there was a hearing about the yeah. subject. But it was really shrouded in a lot of obfuscation, um, a lot of uh, attention to details that really weren't even important details. And then, of course, uh, playing a video of the triangle video of, of night vision, which we all pretty much know was a, a defocused um, camp, uh, night vision device where they, the field stop was creating a triangular shape. And I thought that was kind of suspicious, even when that video was released, that maybe that was released for the purpose so that it could be debunked later and say, see, fellas, that's what you guys are all seeing is, mm. is this kind of stuff. And they didn't get to the meat of it. Uh, it was it, that part was very disappointing. Or when they were asked about the missile base being shut down, and and the and the pe the people that are supposedly the authority on the phenomenon had no knowledge of it, you know, as they claimed. That you know is very disappointing. And and so I wasn't impressed by anybody's level of performance, or or I should say even the questions that were asked amongst themselves. I didn't really think that they were at a, at a real level. Of, of integrity, but rather more of a public display uh, to try to satisfy and say, see, here's what we got. This is what we the real did. stuff came out in the back room afterwards. Yeah. And then they announced that they're going to they're going to do a continuation behind closed doors. Well, we all would like to be the fly on the wall. It's like we, we know that doors. they've got better video than they showed of this thing that you looks like a garbage bag or something floating 
outside of yeah. the plane. You're telling yeah. me, I mean, the Nimitz videos, you know, that stuff yeah. was better than that. They, they don't even want to cover that. And, and I guarantee you the guys even uh, discussing it probably have no experience reviewing videos and, and doing the proper analysis on a video, vetting it and determining whether or not it's a hoax or whether if it's a, a real phenomenon or, or some sort of a camera aberration. So I would say disappointing from most aspects. The only positive is the fact that there was a hearing, uh, but it was a, it, essence, it was a, um, you know, it, it was pretty much garbage for everybody who watched it. It was pretty hard to watch. Well, gentlemen, uh, this has been awesome. Uh, my last real question, and I really have to know is like, how did you uh, get William Shatner? How'd you get Captain Kirk himself? <laughs> Yeah, there's quite a few high-profile cameos. Yeah, well, believe it or not, it wasn't me. Well. <laughs> yeah. And uh, wasn't me. It yeah. was. Uh, yeah. I mean, what was it? I mean, what, what was it like meeting? Uh, you know, T.J. Hooker. I actually already knew him. And, I, yeah. I knew him from uh, my when I was working in my Comic Con days. You know, I've known the guy for a long time. Um, I didn't get to talk to him, or it's funny. I've worked with him in the past. I worked on this TV show and I'm in a movie with him and he probably has no idea. <laughs> like, what what, what TV I, show was that? Was that the, the uh, I, I, I work occasionally. I work on the um, unexplained. You have to be specific about which TV show William Shatner the, the was William, on. The William, yeah, the, the, the new one he's on now, The Unexplained. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah I have I friends like, that are producers. were you in Star Trek? I didn't know. No, no, no. Yeah, I have uh, friends that are producers on the show, and they call me occasionally for some advice. Or he was a Romulan. Casting. They put a bunch of yes, live long prosthetics and on his face. Yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, Dave, you know, Dave, uh, I think it was Dave and two other guys were, were able to meet him. I'll let Dave tell you that story. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Shatner, I, I, I mean, the Shat himself. Got to, got to meet him at the uh, studio. So uh, when by the time I got to meet him, he was already running late in his schedule. So I only got to speak a few words. And it, it was a bit overwhelming to see this guy that I'd seen since I was like four yeah. years old and understanding him. And watching the show. Uh, I remember when I was four watching the show, I thought it was really happening that this was a spaceship lying around and these guys were going all over the place. And I think it was when I was five, I figured out it was a TV series. You but, really believe those women were green? Oh, sure. Yeah. And I, <laughs> I even believed all the machines and the aliens and the things were happening. I just thought that and in, in those days when I'd watch a Western and a guy got shot, I thought, they, they killed the guy for the show. I mean, that's, that's what you did. <laughs> and so, you know, it, it, I think by the time I was five, I figured things out. But, um, but yeah, it was really very overwhelming to meet the guy uh, and speak a few words. And, and you know, and, but he, he had to leave the studio when I had my chance just to have a few moments. Busy but, guy. Yeah, he was a very busy guy. But it was exciting. He, to he was going into guy. space. Yeah, he, shortly thereafter, <laughs> he went to space. God, I mean, he's what? He's 90, 90 something, right? Is he's he 90. 90? I'm, not, I, um, I'm actually friends uh, with um, Walter Koenig, who played Chekhov. Yeah. You know, I, yeah. I've worked, I've worked mm -hmm. with him before. And, uh, you know, it's, I've, I'm actually working on a project right now with some of the cast from Star Trek Voyager for, for some TV stuff. So, yeah, it's pretty cool to, to mix the reality with the fiction, you know? But the fiction, I think, is what triggers it all because, like, you if look it at wasn't the old for Star that, if it wasn't for the original Star Trek, we wouldn't have many of the scientists that we have today. When you look at what Steve Jobs had said and th and people like that that were inspired by it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Oh yeah, well absolutely. If it wasn't for I Star mean, Wars, I wouldn't be here sitting here right now. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, Star Trek is what gives us, you know, like the the cell phone. I mean, smartphones. I mean, you basically see like the pre that the idea came from Star Trek and all that. You know, yeah. The the science fiction gives us a a it puts a goal. It's like here's somebody saying this is what it's we amused. have. Yeah, yeah. Come on, yeah. here it is. Let's do it. You know, so you put it out there and you make it a goal. So when people, the younger generation, see it, they say. I'm going to start a company and build that device or make something that's along those lines. And look what it's got us today. It, it, it has been very inspirational. So that even the people that are in science fiction, I think they're equally as important as scientists as, as the re, um, as amongst real scientists. Yeah. I think I, I we like, just like, go ahead, Dave. I was just say real quick, I, I like blowing people's minds that don't know much about Roddenberry and Star Trek. And I started telling them the story of Gene Roddenberry and the nine. You know, like <laughs> how, you know, how the nine happened and allegedly that Roddenberry was at some of those seances or whatever they were doing, those channeling sessions. And that's where he got some of his ideas for this stuff. Well, yeah, we talk to Gullius about that, though. Yeah. <laughs> Ask him because he he did a great episode about the nine. And um, Oh, I've heard them all. Yeah. Yeah. I think we need a little more Star Trek and a little less uh, William Gibson cyberpunk dystopias. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, I watched just to, going off on a tangent here. I mean, the 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 new series is great, Strange New World. Oh, I, yeah, I love three it. episodes, and I watched them all yeah. so far. I mean, it's just like watching the original series. Yeah, it's crazy the way they did that. Mm-hmm. You know, which that's based off of the original. Well, the, the, the original pilot pilot that they did. Mm-hmm. And then they brought him back for uh, Discovery. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that same that that actor, but the original original Star Trek pilot was you know a different was Jeffrey Hunter, right? And then they said that one was too like cerebral, so they redid it with Shatner and whole other cast. So I got a little bit of the Star Trek geekery in me. So, hey, we all do. <laughs> I, it was, it's funny. I got to mention that when uh, years years ago, I was invited to a Mensa Society uh, meeting and um, sat in this session and they were all talking about Star Trek trivia. And then somebody asked this question and it was the only question that I could answer because I, you know, I'm not, I was big in Star Trek, but not really insane. But there was just one particular thing I remembered. And the trivia question was, how many tribbles were on the space station K7 when Spock announced his assessment uh, after in that episode of Troubles with Tribbles? It, and, and I raised my hand and said 1,771,561. And, and the guy says, you're right. And everybody turned at me and looked at me like I was one of them. And, <laughs> I, I, and the funny thing was, if they asked me any other question, I wouldn't have known the answer. But it just it was something that stuck in my head as a kid. Did you just remember it from the show? Yeah, it was just something I remembered it because it was when I was a kid, the troubles with tribbles was my favorite show, uh, favorite episode. And, and I always, I'd have nightmares that tribbles, tribbles were actually turned into Borg and there was Borg tribbles. I, well, you know, what gave me nightmares as a kid, it was the, the doomsday machine. It looked like that giant Uh stone ice cream cone in space that was eating spaceships. That thing scared me. And, and then the one that had, um, Oh, it, it was it was that thing that had the dummy on it. It had the weird head. I call it the bean head as a kid. And it had uh, the guy, um, 
Ron Clint Howard. Clint Howard was in it, and he played a yeah, little. Yeah. 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 <laughs> what that episode? But that dummy just—it it scared me, you know. And, and then, of course, the horde of the the big pizza thing that was eating tunnels in the in the mines of, of the of the rock, you know that. That stuff that kind of lingers. I don't know, David. It sounds like you were pretty into that show. The one that freaks me out when I was a kid was the one where they were on that planet with like the chill. It was all children on the planet. Yeah, and they had the weird faces. They reached a certain age. They started getting like this weird leprosy. I mean, I and, was like, oh, and yeah. the other one was the, the the beings with the big heads with the veins in it. Yeah, that's from yeah. the the original pilot. Yeah, it had like the pulsing and stuff. Yeah, South yeah, Park. South Park did a lot of this. Made <laughs> yeah. fun of a lot of that stuff too. Yeah, but like yeah, my yeah. favorite one was the one where they had uh, Frank Gorshin, the guy who played the Riddler. The, the Riddler, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and he had like you know the black on one side, the white on the other. They get him, and they have the other guy that comes on the ship, and he's got the same thing, but it's reversed. And so they're like they're trying to kill each other because they're you know they're the only ones left of their whole of their whole planet. So it was like this message about racism and racial struggle, and like you get away with a lot of cool stuff like that. The messages. Oh, back then, yeah, it was like exploitation almost. They had to put (laughs) it in there. It was like Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone, um, same kind of stuff. The one where he fights, what is it? The 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 gore, whatever the giant lizard guy, the gore. Yeah. Yeah, So that where they film that is in Topanga Canyon, and Mm -hmm. if you if you pay attention to a lot of movies like example bill and ted excellent adventure like where they where they die no the second one where they die they fall off uh, bogus they actually yeah they actually fall off of that cliff and the whole scene is shot in front of that rock and i've uh, seen yeah. so many movies that Western i can be like it. oh that's that's where they shot that scene and they use it in a lot of movies it's it cool. gets used a lot of westerns are the same thing yeah yeah, yeah. there was yeah. there was a, re- a really good episode of star trek that had um Robert Lansing, and it was um, Assignment Earth, where he's kind of like, Robert Lansing is almost like a, a James Bond, and he's time-traveled to the past because he's trying to stop a nuclear weapon, and mm-hmm. has uh, Terry Gar, and that was a really good episode. That uh, was another- supposed to Those have are my been, favorite ones. That was supposed to have been its own series. Yeah, it almost developed out. And, yeah. Uh, Robert Lansing. All really the ones where present. Spock's human and he wears a hat to cover up his ears. Yeah, that was uh, the good ones. <laughs> yeah, that that one was. Uh, uh, trying to remember her name. Um, and they're in oh, jail. Boy. They go to jail. Yeah, and there's one where Captain Kirk falls in love and Edith Keeler is supposed to die, and they're time traveled, and, and that was a pretty good episode. A City on the, the edge of forever. That's okay, I didn't know the name. Yeah. And then the the piece of the action. Yeah, that was a fun one. Uh, the the western one. Um, I think City on the Edge of Forever might have been Richard Matheson. I think that might have been the one he wrote. I'm not 100% sure on that. Yeah, there was one episode I didn't like, and it was uh, it was one with uh, Marjo Gortner was in it. And maybe that was the reason. Marjo um, Gortner but, was in Star Trek? Yeah, he was okay. in one of these. Uh, um, it had like these hippie guys, and I can't remember what they did. I usually just tune it out, but. Yeah. Pretty much every episode was was done very well. I mean, everybody did their role, did them well, and Spock was just the pinnacle of the coolest of aliens ever. Period. I mean, just the coolest of cool. Well, guys, thank you so much for being a part of this, Dave Altman. Please tell us where we can find the film and uh, where people can find you. So the film is on Amazon Vimeo, or you can go to our site, which is a tear in the sky.com. 
And I can be found on Facebook, David H. Altman, and on Twitter at David H. Altman, and Instagram, David H. Altman. And David Mason, where can people see uh, some of the stuff that you've been doing? Um, I have my own uh, Facebook page. It's just David Mason. And then I have a YouTube channel, which is also just David Mason. Uh, there's probably a few David Masons. Uh, it, uh, if you see the name, you'll see my head and I'm wearing some flight gear because uh, I was flying an airplane. And, so and that- if you're into this stuff, you'll have mutual friends. <laughs> <laughs> right. All right, gentlemen, this has been awesome. Uh, thank you so much. We're going to close out the show. But please stay on the line for us. So, guys, uh, if you are interested in seeing this film, Tear in the Sky, uh, we highly recommend it. And uh, as you guys should know by now, you can find us at Spiranormal.com, with Spiranormal Podcast YouTube channel. And we also have a Patreon that you can join up. And every month we've been doing these um, strange realities, uh, online events. Strange realities, of course, is our other um is our other entity in our conference, which is actually coming up October 14th through the 16th here in Nashville, Tennessee. We're hoping that uh, you guys will come out for that. And Sergio can tell you where you can find our Patreon. You can find that at patreon.com slash conspiranormal. And I would like to say too, like these, these interruptions to our podcast feed keep happening with mm. these two guys. Um, I complained bitterly to the uh, podcast hosting site. And uh, for this to stop, but these guys have been really like, uh, I don't know, uh, it might happen on this episode. It may have already happened. So if you guys keep hearing this, like Shelby and Orvis or whoever the hell these people are, just, uh, you know, why don't you report that? Um, Because these guys are really like, you know, cutting into our Patreon money and getting a little mad about it. Yeah. Yeah. And whatever they say, you know, isn't true. And uh, they say, supposedly, you know, they have informants on the inside of our, our patron. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, you guys did take very serious blood oaths uh, of the information we parted. We really yeah. hope that you're not just uh, sharing that all willy-nilly with some uh, conspiracy-obsessed hillbillies. Yeah, we'd hate for you to end up like William Morgan. Yeah. Okay, guys. Uh, that's it for now. Uh, join us next time on Conspiranormal. credit card bill.